Good morning. The scripture reading today is from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, I welcome the opportunity to again uh, come before you and bring a message. Uh, on a weekend like this, it allows our pastoral staff to do some other things. So uh, again, thank you for extending this invitation to me. Uh, while this message is not part of our current series on fake good news, uh, I think from the scriptures that Jill read for us, you can discern that uh, there are elements of the fake good news and the real good news that's gonna be contained in this message. Because it does remind us that Christ is the gospel. And this morning I want to take us to Paul's letter to the Colossians to discover the preeminence of Christ and its importance. And I will use three questions to guide this morning's message. First question, what was the importance of Christ to the Colossian church? Our second question will be, what is the importance of Christ to the current church today? And last, what is the importance of Christ to you, the believer? Some background, Colossae was a small town located in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It was neither a large or important community anymore, although it had previously been that way, but it had been upstaged by its neighbor, Laodicea, which was about 10 miles away. Paul, as he indicates in his letter, had not personally visited Colossae. The Colossian church owed its uh, origin to Epaphras, a fellow worker of Paul, who had, who had worked and studied under Paul. But Colossae, like many towns in Asia Minor, had a mixture of pagan worship, Judaism, and mysterious religions, which uh, prom promised entry into a secret, secret higher knowledge and a higher world that was not available to the average person. And over time, they say, these lines kind of blurred between all these different religions, and a phenomenon known as syncretism became, became common. I want to go to Curtis Vaughn and his introduction to his commentary on Colossians, where he writes, Paul's purpose in writing Colossians was threefold. First, to express his personal interest in the church. Second, he wanted to warn them against reverting to their old pagan ways. And third, to refute the false teaching that was threatening the Colossian church. And the last one, 
was undoubtedly Paul's greatest concern. He met the Colossians' false knowledge not by appearing to ignorance or obscuritism, but by, by, but by making a plea for the fuller knowledge, fuller knowledge found in Christ. He confronted the representation of false gospels by its positive setting forth of the truth and the nature of the unmatched glory of Christ. Well, scholars have often held that the Colossians uh, was written to combat this particular danger within the church and false teachers were espousing the spurious doctrines and practices, uh, demoting Christ from his position of a unique preeminence and encouraging others to vacate the church and to adopt dubious mystical and archaic practices. Since there's no agreement on just what particular heresy the church was being plagued by, I want to spend just a couple of moments talking about three of them that were probably uh, prominent at that time. Uh, any or all of them may have been at work. But first, I want to look at the influence of Judaism. Uh, the Judaizers were uh, present from the very beginning of the church. The church initially began with Jewish converts. Uh, but there was within that movement uh, a group that believed that to be a good Christian, you still had to be a good Jew. You had to observe the law. You, men had to be circumcised. Uh, you had to still observe all the holy days. This became even more important as Gentiles began to come into the church, and they insisted that, no, you have to be a good Jew before you can become a Christian. So that, that influence was at work. And if you here, were here last week, you'll remember Jared talking about the fake the good news of moralism. Well, that's what this was, Judaizers was. Yes, Christ is important, but you have to do all these other things to attain salvation. Well, the second element was a pagan element, and it's kind of a mixture of uh, religion and philosophical works. Uh, it's called Gnosticism, and actually the term itself didn't come into being until later, a little later on, uh, but Gnosticism elevated knowledge above everything, and one of their tenets was that all matter is evil. And that has some implications when we look at the, car at the uh, incarnation of Christ because if all matter is evil, Christ cannot, as a human, be God. And then also they, in uh, part of their uh, practices was that salvation is not attained, attain, obtained through uh, those things that Paul was talking about. Rather, it is obtained through this secret knowledge that only they have privy to. Uh, some of them held to the fact that Jesus had this knowledge. He gave it to the apostles, and the apostles only gave that to a select few people. And if you wanted to attain salvation, you had to have this. And I suspect that for you to have this, it was going to cost you financially as well as other aspects of your life. And the third one was labeled as a Christian element in the Colossian era. And at its heart, it really is kind of a combination of Judaism and paganism. It wore the mask of Christianity. It looked like Christianity. They talked about all the various tenets of Christianity. But Christ never was preeminent in that. Christ was demoted to a lesser role in the church. And they've had other reasons that you had to be doing these things to be a, a Christian. So 
those are the three main ones that Paul was probably addressing in this letter. And I find it interesting how Paul uh, attacks this problem. And it reminds me of something, I heard this a long time ago, and I keep thinking I'm going to put it in the message, and so today it's here. But anyway, agents that are being trained for the Treasury Department to detect counterfeit money, you would expect them to be exposed to all types of counterfeit money. No, they are exclusively looking at the real, genuine currency so that they can spot the fake. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's going to remind them of the genuine gospel so that they can realize and detect and confront and contradict the false gospel. Uh, R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, opened his section on this with an interesting thing. I wasn't aware of this at the time, but in 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition was held in Chicago, and one of the features was the World Parliament of Religions and representatives of the world's religions met to share their best points and perhaps come up with a new world religion. D.L. Moody saw this as a great chance for evangelism and commissioned evangelisms and assigned them, evangelists, and assigned them to preaching posts throughout the city. He used churches, he rented theaters, he even rented a circus tent uh, to preach the word. Moody's friends wanted him to attack the parliament of, modern, uh, parliament of religions, but he refused, saying, I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will turn to him. So D.L. Moody knew that preaching the Christ preeminent, the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ clearly presented would do the job, and it did. Chicago the Chicago campaign is considered to be D.L. Moody's greatest evangelistic work. And they said thousands came to Christ as a result of that. So instead of debating and focusing upon the errors uh, that you might encounter when dealing with someone who's making a challenge to the gospel, uh, I would suggest that instead of doing that, that you focused on the why and the who of Jesus Christ. That's what, Je that's what Paul did. The why and the who of Jesus Christ. Why was Christ and who was he? Well, this morning there are three profound sweeping statements that, concerning Christ that we find in this morning's scripture. Uh, first one shows his relationship to deity, then also to creation, and finally to the church. So in verse 15 we read the first part. He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Colossians, writes, From all eternity, Jesus has, in his early nature, in his very nature, been the image of God, reflecting perfectly the character and the life of the Father. John proclaimed in his gospel, chapter 118, No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, is not a lesser being or an emanation of the supreme God, as some falsely taught. Jesus himself said, I and the Father am one, John 10, 30. In answer to Philip's question, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us, Jesus said to him. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? John 14, 8 and 9. Paul is emphatically reminding the Colossians that Jesus is God. Again, he's not a rung on the ladder, a means to gain a step up to closer to the supreme being. God and Jesus are the same. Jesus is God. Well, relation to creation. Starting verse 15 again. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul is describing Christ's supremacy in creation in four ways. He is firstborn. He is creator, he is the goal of creation, and he is the sustainer of creation. Christ is called the firstborn of all creation, which at first sight makes us wonder, what kind of teaching is this? Was Jesus a, was the first person God created? And indeed, the Jehovah Witnesses and the heretic Arius before them take it this way, that Jesus was a created being. But they do so by ignoring the context, which makes him creator of everything. They also ignore the indisputable fact that while firstborn can mean first child, it very often is simply a term that means first in rank or honor. N.T. Wright makes this point in writing, firstborn of all creation conveys the idea of priority in both time and rank. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ is also creator, for by him all things were created. All things. There is nothing that was not created by Christ. Paul's list includes everything, from the visible to the invisible, in heaven and on earth. Paul even includes thrones, dominions, Rulers, authorities, there is nothing that exists that was not created by him. There is nothing that creates. Jesus created in ex anilio, from nothing. There was nothing before Jesus created. So Jesus is not only the firstborn of creation, he is the creator. And Jesus Christ is also the end or the goal of creation. For it says all things were created through him and for him. And one commentator suggested that it would, would be better to read that all things were created through him and toward him. To have a better appreciation that the force of that statement. Christ is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And one day everything will give him glory. Philippians 2 verses 10 and 11. So that at that time, so at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, he's firstborn, he's creator, he is the end goal. Christ is also the superior in creation because he is the sustainer. As 
he says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ continues to this day to hold all things together. Apart from his continuous activity, everything would disintegrate. Christ is sustainer. He's holding everything together, this creation. And since he does this, only he, as one commentator pointed out, only he knows how to best fix our lives and order our lives. There is no system of laws or rituals or secret knowledge. No lesser being can sustain this. Christ sustains his creation. Our third statement then is, Christ is head of the church. We read, and he is the head of the body, the church. Paul is reminding the Colossians that Christ is sovereign over the church, just as he is sovereign over creation. When we became believers, we became a part of Christ's body. As members of his bodies, we are body, we are totally dependent upon the head, Christ, for not only direction, but for life. Just as the human body cannot survive without a head, neither can a church. Christ demonstrates his priority by being the firstborn from the dead. Jesus wasn't the first person to be resurrected from death. Elisha raised a child in 2 Kings 4.32. And we know from Jesus' earthly ministry and some of the works of the apostles that other people were also resurrected. But every one of them experienced a second earthly death, but not Jesus. He resurrected to never die again. And because he has new life, we too can have it as well. Paul has equipped the young Colossian church to handle the false teachings that they were experiencing. He reminded them that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, through whom and by whom and for whom all things were created. And he is the head of the church, being first also firstborn from the dead. Paul is saying Christ is God. Christ is supreme. Christ, Christ is sufficient. What is the importance to the church today? Well, even before we relocated to this new facility and changed our name, the leadership of this church had adopted the following statement to help guide us in displaying Christ in all that we do. I'm going to read that for you. Christ first. We exist to put Christ first in our worship. To worship something, to worship someone or something, is to proclaim its ultimate worth. But Christ first in our worship certainly means that our gathered worship services are all about Jesus, but also means that we seek to stir up love for Christ above all in our hearts and, it, <clears throat> and out of that love to live for him in all we do. Christ first in our word ministry. To put Christ first, we must take the authority of Scripture seriously. Christ himself had a high view of the Bible. And if the Bible, and if the Bible that teaches us who Christ is, while not all Christians are called to the role of pastor, all Christians are called to ministry of the word in some way. Rather than speaking the truth in love, we, also, we are to grow in every way into him who is ahead in Christ. Ephesians 4.15 Christ first in our relationships. The Bible makes it clear that our relationships to one another in the church are an important part of God's plan for us. We are commanded to love one another as a family. We are 
<coughs> we are compared to the body made up by the many parts that must work together. Those parts that are all different skills, different backgrounds, even different politics or ethnicities, but we are all one in Christ Jesus, in Christ first in our communities. Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And we seek to follow his example by loving and serving our neighbors. We believe the most important way we can serve those around us is by sharing Christ with them. But that is not the only way we can serve. While we are far from perfect at this, we are seeking ways to reach out in love and to serve those around us. Putting Christ first directs us as a church. And as a member of the leadership team, I can tell you that we take this charge very seriously. As we meet to plan and to make decisions, Christ first directs us. And for any church today, if Christ is not first, if he is in addition to whatever else they do, if he is used as a mean to draw people in, only to direct them to something other than his gospel, then that church lacks a head and therefore is dead. And it may be like the chickens my brothers and I uh, used to kill when we lived on a farm. Uh, the body continued to flop around even though the head was already been removed. Uh, ultimately, that chicken is dead. It just body doesn't know it. And so is that church. Uh, a number of years ago, one of the main reasons we left the Disciples of Christ denomination was because they no longer had Christ first as their head. So, in our current series on fake good news, which I hope you're enjoying that, uh, which highlights false gospels, quote, gospels which really aren't a gospel at all because there is no good news uh, to fake news. But anyway, I want you to continue to listen to those series. I think you will find them not only entertaining, but very helpful in you as you continue to share the gospel in the world around you because you'll find people believing these false gospels as the truth. So a church that does not have Christ at its head is not a church at all. Paul reminded the Colossians of that. I remind the church today of that. Well, what is the importance of Christ for the believer? R. Scott Pace writes, The glory of Christ deserves our highest praise and deepest devotion because the gospel has rescued us from our rebellious hearts and hopeless condition. The glory of Christ deserves our highest praise and deepest devotion because the gospel has rescued us from our rebellious hearts and our hopeless conditions. This morning I ask that we would recite the Nicene Creed. And this creed was a statement of faith that uh, the early church developed in response to the heresy of Arius. And while it does not have the same authority of scripture, as Pastor Mike pointed out, it is helpful in clarifying our beliefs. And I just want to share the part that pertains to Jesus. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. And he came down from heaven. He became the incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. 
He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. I'm not going to take the time to connect the dots between this right piece of scripture and the uh, Nicene Creed, but I think it's pretty apparent that this creedal statement strongly reinforces what Paul was trying to communicate to the Colossians. Uh, <clears throat> so, what does it mean to have Christ in your life? What does it mean to the believer? Acts 4.12, I think is very famous uh, among most believers. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Jesus is the only name. He is the only means to salvation. Luke is very clear when he makes that statement that Jesus is the only means to salvation. It is by the work of Christ and him alone that we have salvation. Uh, most of you are too young to remember the evangelism explosion. I, I only know about it mostly from others telling me about it. It started sometime in the early 60s, uh, D. James Kennedy from Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church uh, was a founder, but he acknowledges someone else had really directed him to that. But anyway, there's a question that they would use to engage people to, so they could share the gospel. And the question was something like this. If you were to die tonight and to gain entry into heaven, what would you say? Now, if you were here uh, a few messages ago, Mason Jones uh, also posed this question, on what basis should you be allowed into heaven, entry into heaven? Uh, if your answer is in the first person, because I, because I was a good person, because I had faith, because I believe, because I'm continuing, because I'm active in my church, because I, 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 if those are your answer, if that's your answer, you're wrong. That indicates the gospel isn't complete. I have to do something. There's some worth about me in the gospel that makes, it, makes me allowed to be entered into heaven. It's not me. That's a gospel that contains works. And the longer you stay on that path, it's just a logical conclusion that eventually it would be because I am Christ and not Christ and I. Now, the only correct answer is in the third person. Because he, because he died on the cross for my sins. Because he is the only means to salvation. Because of he, because of Christ. Christ alone is the means of salvation. That's, that's the answer. That's the answer that Paul was communicating to the Colossian church. That's the answer that the church needs today. That's the answers that believers need today. Because of he, because of the work of Christ and Christ alone. So I urge you this morning as I come to a close here that, that you make Christ first, not only in your church life, your religious aspect of your life, but make him first 
in your complete life. Make your life ordered around Christ. Does Christ influence, impact, direct the decisions that you make on a regular basis? I want to read our scripture in conclusion. Just read our scripture again for us. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is the head of the church, head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For by him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father God, the early apostolic fathers had it correct when they wisely observed that speaking of Jesus if he is not Lord of all then he is not Lord at all and Father this morning just took a brief look at how Paul responded to the false teachings that a young church was experiencing by pointing out the preeminence of the Son Christ the incarnate God that walked and breathed and taught and loved and ministered among humankind, entered into time and space that he might begin the process of salvation. And we can look back at the events of 2,000 years ago and we can celebrate that we can have new life because of the work that he accomplished. For Father, when we consider the church and we consider the foundations of the church, we need not look anywhere else but to Christ and him alone. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.